Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be doing an overview of some of the most high-yield things you need to know for the NBME as it pertains to congenital renal and genital urinary defects. We'll start off the episode going over all the major congenital anomalies of the kidneys and the urinary tract. After that, we'll discuss congenital disorders of the genitals, including a framework that you might want to follow when working up ambiguous genitalia, or more generally, the various disorders of sexual development. And lastly, we'll be doing a deep dive on congenital adrenal hyperplasia, trying as always to leave you with the big picture idea of what's really going on while highlighting little high yield tidbits along the way. If you find this information helpful, please consider subscribing as that will really help to get the word out to other students. Thank you. And now my friends, let's begin our discussion on the congenital renal and genital urinary defects. We'll begin our discussion with an overview of the Potter sequence. The Potter sequence is a spectrum of findings caused by dysfunctional kidneys in utero, leading to a loss of urine production with resulting oligohydromnios. The oligohydromnios causes compression of the fetus, leading to a constellation of findings including limb deformities, pulmonary hypoplasia, and characteristic facial features of low-set ears, a flattened nose, prominent ampicanthic folds, and downward slanting eyes. The severity of symptoms seen in Potter sequence varies widely depending on the timing of the initial insult, with those defects occurring earlier in the pregnancy typically being more severe. In addition to renal dysfunction, which is the focus of this episode, there may be also non-renal causes of Potter sequence, such as premature rupture of membranes, referred to episode 3, and twin-to-twin transfusions, referred to episode 10. Let's go through some of the most common renal causes of the Potter sequence, starting with renal agenesis. Renal agenesis is a common cause of illegal hydromnios and can be detected prenatally by around 20 weeks gestation with an amniotic fluid index less than 5 centimeters, small or absent kidneys, and in the case of bilateral renal agenesis, is also associated with the absence of a urinary bladder. One way oligohydromnios may present on exam is with a fundal height that is smaller than what would be predicted based on gestational age. As a reminder, the fundal height is the length in centimeters from the pubic symphysis to the dome of the uterus, and this is approximately equal to the number of weeks of gestation. Neonates with oligohydromnios from renal agenesis are at risk for pulmonary hypoplasia and severe respiratory distress at birth, and this is because the developing lungs are highly dependent on amniotic fluid for proper chest expansion. In cases of bilateral renal agenesis, there is severe oligohydromnios, and these babies have a survival rate nearing 0%. You may be asking yourself, what if we diagnosed bilateral renal agenesis prenatally? Would we then be able to perform serial amnioinfusion for these babies? Well, this has been tried, but studies show that this intervention provides little to no benefit, and the mortality rate is still basically 100%. 
which is important to know if you're going to be having these sorts of difficult conversations with your patients. Next, let's talk about renal cysts. In this episode, we'll be focusing on renal cysts that arise during early development, as opposed to those acquired renal cysts that arise later in life. But I'll just say a few words about the acquired cysts now, just so you can keep them in mind. Acquired renal cysts are incredibly common, and most of them are harmless. Renal cysts can be evaluated on ultrasound and be classified according to the Bosniak scale, which is a 1 to 5 scale predicting the likelihood of renal cysts to be malignant based on certain characteristics. Small, solitary renal cysts are more typically harmless and have a low potential for malignancy. However, cysts which are septated and or contain calcifications are graded higher on the Bosniak scale and should be removed and biopsied. Congenital renal cysts can be from a variety of causes and are often due to aberrations in normal development, resulting in proliferation of growth factors. Let's go through some of the most common of these congenital renal cyst disorders, starting with polycystic kidney disease. Congenital polycystic kidney disease is a disorder characterized by bilateral cystic lesions of the kidneys and can be generally broken down into one of two groups. The autosomal dominant form of polycystic kidney disease is the most commonly inherited renal cyst disorder and is in fact the single most commonly inherited renal disorder in general. Autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease is caused by a mutation in either the PKD1 or the PKD2 gene on chromosome 16 and individuals with this mutation are thought to be subject to the two-hit hypothesis, similar to how other disorders work, such as retinoblastoma. And as a summary, what basically happens here is there is a single affected allele in each renal tubular cell, and all it needs is for one single somatic mutation to occur in the normal allele. And when this happens, the disease manifests, which in this case is with the abnormal proliferation of growth factors leading to cyst formation. These cysts disrupt normal kidney architecture and functionality, and cause activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system with resultant hypertension. Hypertension is in fact one of the biggest problems that arises in patients with autosomal dominant polycystic disease, and this may manifest as a patient in their 20s or 30s with secondary hypertension, or in the most severe form, can cause ruptured aneurysms around the circle of Willis. For this reason, any individual identified with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease should be screened with MR angiography every five years and treatment is going to be centered around managing the hypertension with medications, a low salt diet, and in cases of end-stage renal disease, you're going to need renal replacement therapy with hemodialysis or renal transplantation. Autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease, on the other hand, is caused by a mutation in the PKHD1 gene on chromosome 6. Individuals with autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease tend to have small microcysts on the kidneys, mostly affecting the collecting ducts of the nephron. These patients may also have hepatic involvement with biliary duct proliferation, periportal fibrosis, and portal hypertension. Based on the degree of renal and or hepatic involvement, autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease can be broken down into one of three major categories. The perinatal type is the worst presentation and has predominantly renal features, with oligohydromnios and subsequent pulmonary hypoplasia. The neonatal type has mixed renal and hepatic features and is associated with minimal to moderate hepatic and periportal fibrosis. And lastly, there's the juvenile type, which has the most severe hepatic features, including hepatosplenomegaly and portosystemic varices, while the renal features are relatively minimal. Long-term monitoring of patients with autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease should include regular assessment of renal and liver function tests, and in the end stage, these patients will require dual liver and kidney transplantation. 
there are a few other congenitally acquired cystic renal disorders, so let's run through those now. Medullary cystic kidney disease, or MCKD, and juvenile nephropnoptosis are both heritable disorders characterized by multiple renal cysts. MCKD is autosomal dominant, and JNPH is autosomal recessive, and the lesions of both of these disorders tend to be bilateral and have a very poor prognosis. Tuberous sclerosis is an autosomal dominant condition caused by a defect in either the TSC1 or TSC2 genes and cause benign tumors throughout the body. Tuberous sclerosis will typically present in early childhood with developmental delay, seizures, and characteristic hypopigmented macules throughout the body, as well as angiofibromas, which are benign tumors of blood vessels. In addition, these babies will have various tumors throughout their body, including tubers, or potato-like nodules, in the brain, rhabdomyomas in the heart, pulmonary cysts, as well as angiomyolipomas of the kidneys, which are prone to rupture. Von Hippel-Lindau disease is another autosomal dominant disorder that affects multiple organ systems, and this is due to a mutation of the VHL gene on chromosome 3, which basically upregulates growth factors that respond to hypoxia. So you get excessive vascular proliferation with things like VEGF, platelet-derived growth factor, and erythropoietin. The single most characteristic feature that you need to know for von Hippel-Lindau disease is the presence of numerous hemangioblastomas in the CNS, which are benign tumors formed from new blood vessels. Hemangioblastomas may be seen in the retina on fundoscopy, but you'll want to get an MRI to look for these lesions in the brain, which, if found, should be surgically removed. Renal cysts are also very commonly seen in von Hippel-Lindau, and there is also an association with renal cell carcinoma and or pheochromocytoma. So for those individuals who are at risk, prophylactic nephrectomy and or partial adrenalectomy may be recommended. Next up is horseshoe kidney, which is a migration defect characterized by the two kidneys being fused together, forming a horseshoe shape. Many cases of horseshoe kidney are asymptomatic. However, known complications include a risk of uretopelvic obstructions, kidney stones, and vesicourethral reflux, which we'll be discussing next. Other known associations with horseshoe kidney include chromosomal abnormalities, especially Edwards syndrome and Turner syndrome, as well as with various tumors such as transitional cell carcinoma, Wilms tumor, and the otherwise very rare carcinoid tumor. Let's move on down to congenital defects of the lower urinary tract, starting with uretopelvic junction obstructions. Uretopelvic junction obstructions are a spectrum of disorders characterized by abnormal flow of urine across the renal pelvis and into the ureter, and collectively, these disorders are the most common cause of hydronephrosis seen in young children. The two most common causes of uretopelvic junction obstructions are from a functional obstruction in the smooth muscle layer of the ureter preventing normal peristalsis, or when the ureter is attached to the top of the renal pelvis instead of near the bottom, making an awkward angle for the urine to flow out. If you detect hydronephrosis in a neonate, a good next step is of course to order the typical labs like BUN and creatinine but you're also going to want to do something called avoiding cystourethrogram, or VCUG, wherein a catheter is used to fill the bladder with water-soluble contrast, and then fluoroscopy is used to observe the internal flow of urine. As we'll see in a few other disorders covered in this episode, VCUG is an essential tool in the delineation of many urinary pathologies. So if you're presented with a case of a complicated urinary issue, such as repeat UTIs, UTIs in boys, the presence of hydronephrosis, etc., then you should probably be ordering a VCUG for further workup. Most cases of uretopelvic junction obstructions that are detected in the neonatal period will gradually resolve on their own, 
with surgical repair only being indicated for those cases with impaired renal function, recurrent infections, or symptomatic obstruction. Next up is vesicoureteral reflux, which is characterized by retrograde flow of urine from the bladder back up through the ureters. Normally, the distal ureter enters the bladder at an oblique angle and actually traverses through a small bit of the muscular layer of the bladder for about 1 to 2 centimeters before eventually reaching the draining orifice. The reason why the ureter takes this oblique path across the bladder is because the muscular layer of the bladder is able to constrict, and when it does so, it will compress on that small segment of the ureter, only opening in response to higher peristaltic pressures coming from higher up in the ureter. The most common cause of vesicoureteral reflux is when the distal segment of the ureter does not traverse through enough length of the bladder's muscular layer before emptying. Therefore, there won't be enough pressure to circumferentially compress that segment, allowing urine to flow backwards. The gold standard procedure to diagnose vesicoureteral reflux is with VCUG. And the mainstay of therapy for vesicoureteral reflux is continuous oral antibiotic prophylaxis, using something like nitrofurantoin, cephalosporins, or Bactrim. If patients with vesicoureteral reflux are not responsive to prophylactic antibiotic therapy and still get recurrent UTIs, then these patients should be surgically repaired to prevent chronic kidney damage. Next up, let's discuss congenital anomalies of the urethra. Posterior urethral valves are one of the most common causes of urinary obstruction in children and can lead to urinary retention and, if untreated, end-stage renal disease. Most cases of posterior urethral valves are detected prenatally with hydronephrosis on ultrasound. And after birth, these babies can present with a wide range of symptoms, including delayed voiding or a weak stream, urosepsis, and in the most severe cases will have respiratory distress caused by Potter sequence in utero, leading to pulmonary hypoplasia. Similar to vesicoureteral reflux, gold standard diagnosis of posterior urethral valves is made with VCUG with common radiographic features including a thickened trabeculated bladder and dilated elongation of the posterior urethra. Treatment of posterior urethral valves is to use an endoscopic catheter to ablate the affected valve, and a common complication of this procedure is residual vesicoureteral reflux. Hypospadias is one of the most common congenital anomalies of the urethra, and this is when the external urethral opening is on the ventral surface of the penile shaft. Hypospadias is often associated with a dorsal cordy, which is where the foreskin does not cover the entire head of the penis. Hypospadias may occur as an isolated finding or may be seen in other genetic syndromes, such as Wagger syndrome, standing for Wilms tumor, aniridia, genitourinary anomalies, and retardation, and Charge syndrome, which, as we discussed in episode 13, stands for coloboma, heart defects, atresia of the coena, retarded growth, genital anomalies, and ear abnormalities. When hypospadias is identified in a neonate, treatment should be surgery within the first year or so of life. It's important to note that I emphasize the male presentation of hypospadias so far, but be aware that hypospadias can also occur in females as an internal cleft of the urethra, and this may be missed by physicians and can cause chronic urethritis, cystitis, and vulvovaginitis. Next up is epispadias which is basically the reverse of hypospadias with the urethral opening on the dorsal aspect of the penis. Epispadias may occur as an isolated finding, although it is more commonly found in conjunction with the severe congenital defect of bladder extrophy, wherein the bladder basically develops outside of the fetus. Bladder extrophy epispadia complex, or BEEC, typically presents as a newborn with a fleshy red mass bulging out of the suprapubic region, and when identified, 
Treatment is to cover the mass with plastic saran wrap to prevent the development of bladder polyps, followed by surgery. Next up is prune belly syndrome, which is characterized by the triad of hypoplastic abdominal muscles, cryptorchidism, and urinary tract anomalies. The underdevelopment of the abdominal muscles gives the abdominal skin a wrinkled appearance, hence the name prune belly syndrome, and depending on the degree of renal dysplasia, they may also have pulmonary hypoplasia with subsequent respiratory distress. Surgery in cases of prune belly syndrome will include orchiopexy to correct the cryptorchidism, procedures involving the urinary tract to relieve any obstructions, and abdominal wall reconstruction. Let's shift our focus now to ambiguous genitalia, and more generally, the disorders of sexual development. Disorders of sexual development can generally be broken down into one of two categories. Those disorders characterized by aberrations in sex determination, and those disorders characterized by aberrations in sex differentiation. Sex determination refers to chromosomal pairing, and potential disorders can include mosaicisms, such as 45X slash 45... And potential disorders can include mosaicisms, such as 45X slash 46XY or 46XX slash 46XY, as well as aneuploidies, such as Turner syndrome and Klinefelter syndrome, the latter two of which will typically have normal-appearing external genitalia. Sex differentiation disorders, on the other hand, are caused by any one of a huge number of genes and often results in disordered interplay of the hormones necessary for crucial stages in the process of differentiating between males and females. One of the first steps in your evaluation is going to be to actually differentiate between ambiguous genitalia versus the normal spectrum of findings that may be present at birth. Some common features of ambiguous genitalia include males with a micropenis measuring less than 2.5 centimeters, a bifid scrotum, and undescended testes. Undescended testes, also known as cryptorchidism, is seen in about 3% of births and are due to persistence of the processus vaginalis, which is a piece of fibrous tissue that is acting in this case to retract the testes back up into the abdominal cavity via the inguinal canal, leaving behind an empty scrotal sac. Most cases of cryptorchidism will redescend on their own within six months. However, if by six months the testes have failed to descend, surgical orchiopexy is indicated. Surgery is necessary in these cases, as proper examination of the testes is otherwise impossible, and thus any potential testicular cancers that may occur later in life would be missed. Bilateral undescended testes occur in about 10% of cases, and if bilateral undescended testes are found, then this should raise suspicion of a female with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which, as we'll soon discuss, are a potentially lethal cause of female virilization. Female virilization refers to the process of excessive androgen hormones influencing female genitalia to take on more male characteristics. Some common features of virilized female anatomy include clitoral megaly with a clitoris measuring greater than 9 millimeters, bilateral inguinal masses, and fusion of the labial folds. As you can see, there are quite a few features of ambiguous genitalia in males and females with overlaps and similarities. Therefore, even with a careful physical exam, it may not be sufficient to come up with a diagnosis. Imaging modalities such as ultrasound or MRI are helpful in these cases in delineating internal anatomy and vaginoscopy, which is basically an imaging procedure using an endoscope with a tiny camera, is essential for accurately visualizing the vaginal anatomy. 
Once you have identified ambiguous genitalia, your next step is going to be to perform a karyotype analysis, which will help you to differentiate between a disorder of sex determination or a disorder of sex differentiation. If the karyotype comes back as anything other than 46XX or 46XY, then you know you're dealing with a chromosomal abnormality. And if you need a refresher on those, then you can refer to episode 12. After establishing the karyotype, one of the next things you're going to want to evaluate for is the presence of the SRY gene. Up until about week 7 of gestation, male and female embryos are pretty much anatomically the same. There are, however, two major groups of embryological structures shared by both male and female embryos, and these structures will go on to take their own separate paths in the process of sex differentiation, depending on the influence of various hormones. The first of these structures is the malarian duct which in females will persist and eventually become the oviducts, uterus, cervix, and upper vagina. In males, however, the SRY gene on the Y chromosome is activated around week 7, and this acts as sort of a master switch to tell the embryo to undergo male gonadal development. One of the major downstream effects of the SRY gene are instructions for the Sertoli cells of the testes to produce anti-malarian hormone which, as the name suggests, is the hormone responsible for obliterating the malarian duct. In 46XY individuals with an inactive SRY, we would expect low levels of anti-malarian hormone, and these babies may have a spectrum of findings, including cryptorchidism and persistent internal female structures. The other major hormone produced by the testes is testosterone, which comes from the Leydig cells. One of the primary functions of testosterone in early development is to stabilize the second shared embryological structure between males and females, and this is the Wolfian duct. The Wolfian duct can be thought of as the male counterpart to the Malarian duct, and its persistence in males is dependent on testosterone, which acts to stabilize the Wolfian duct and allow it to go on and form the epididymis, vas deferens, and the seminal vesicles. Other than stabilizing the Wolfian duct in males, testosterone can also be converted in peripheral tissues to dihydrotestosterone, which is an even more potent androgen and is responsible for the development of the external male genitalia. Production of dihydrotestosterone is dependent on the enzyme 5-alpha reductase, and therefore deficiencies in 5-alpha reductase can result in a spectrum of findings anywhere from micropenis and cryptorchidism to normal-appearing female external anatomy with preserved internal male anatomy. The action of testosterone and other androgens can also be blunted by defective receptors, and depending on the preserved activity of the receptor, may result in either partial or complete androgen insensitivity. In partial androgen insensitivity, males may present with micropenis and or other features of ambiguous genitalia, while in complete androgen insensitivity, the neonate may be completely missed as having a disorder at all, and the first presenting sign may not be until puberty when they present as a female-appearing teenager with primary amenorrhea, later found to have a 46XY karyotype. Let's talk a bit more about working up ambiguous genitalia in 46XX neonates. The SRY gene can be present in 46XX individuals as a result of a translocation, and as we discussed, will lead to the production of anti-malarian hormone with subsequent obliteration of the malarian structures. The hormones produced by the ovaries, as are the hormones produced in the testes, are heavily influenced by signals from the hypothalamus in what is collectively known as the hypothalamus-pituitary-gonadal axis. In females, LH triggers ovarian thecal cells to produce androgen precursor hormones. 
FSH acts on the neighboring granulosa cells to produce the aromatase enzyme, which acts on those androgen precursor hormones and turns them into estrogens, such as estrone and estradiol. Aromatase deficiency is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a dysfunctional aromatase enzyme, and in 46XX individuals, this will lead to a buildup of androgens with subsequent virilization. Aromatase deficiency may also manifest as the result of maternal exposure to an aromatase inhibitor, such as danazole, which is commonly used to treat endometriosis. On the flip side of things, a fetus with its own inborn aromatase deficiency may even cause the mother to experience signs of virilization, including clitoromegaly and hirsutism, which is a male-like pattern of hair growth, and these will typically go away after delivery. One of the most sinister causes of ambiguous genitalia are a spectrum of disorders collectively known as congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Congenital adrenal hyperplasia is characterized by defective enzymatic activity in the adrenal glands and may result in higher or lower than normal levels of the various adrenal hormones. As a reminder, the three main adrenal hormones are the mineralocorticoids, such as aldosterone, produced in the zona glomerulosa, the glucocorticoids, like cortisol, produced in the zona fasciculata, and the androgens like dehydroepiandosterone, or DHEA, which are produced in the zona reticularis. One way to remember the zones of the adrenals is with the phrase, the deeper you go, the sweeter it gets, because aldosterone is involved in the regulation of salt, cortisol causes increased free glucose, and lastly you have the sex hormones, which are the sweetest of all. And if you take the first letter from glomerulosa, fasciculata, and reticularis, you get GFR, which doesn't have so much to do with the adrenals as it does with the things they're sitting on top of, the kidneys. So that's just another way to remember the layers. The adrenal hormones are all basically derived from a cholesterol backbone. And you can imagine these various cholesterol-based compounds passing through the different layers of the adrenal cortex, and each time it passes through a layer, it gets acted on by a different enzyme, each of which is adding, subtracting, or changing various subgroups on the cholesterol molecule until it ends up as either a mineralocorticoid, glucocorticoid, or androgen. I'm sure you can remember the first time you were confronted by that terrible chart of the adrenal cortex with all those various pathways, enzyme names, and intermediaries. But don't worry, because most of that is completely unnecessary to memorize, because 95% of all cases of congenital adrenal hyperplasia are actually caused by just a single enzyme deficiency. Therefore, you really just need to focus on that one enzyme and the pathways it connects to, and if you do that, then theoretically you'll be able to get the answer right 95% of the time. And if that's not good enough for you, I'll also give you a little memory trick at the end to help you remember that other 5%. The most common type of congenital adrenal hyperplasia is caused by a deficiency in the 21-hydroxylase enzyme, and this represents 95% of all cases of congenital adrenal hyperplasia. 21-hydroxylase is a major enzyme in the adrenals and catalyzes two major reactions. Number one is in the cortisol pathway, where it converts 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone into 11-deoxycortisol, which is a precursor to cortisol. Deficiency in 21-hydroxylase enzyme in this case will lead to a buildup of 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone, which is in fact one of the first labs we would want to look for. The second major pathway 21-hydroxylase acts on is in the conversion of progesterone to 11-deoxycorticosterone, which is a precursor to aldosterone. So to summarize it so far, 21-hydroxylase deficiency causes a halt in the pathway to aldosterone and cortisol synthesis and leads to a buildup of 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone. So far, so good.
let's talk about some of the immediate effects of this going on. If you have deficient aldosterone, you're going to have some big problems with salt regulation. And in fact, 70% of 21-hydroxylate deficient patients will have the severe salt-wasting type, which can be life-threatening. Aldosterone acts on the principal cells of the distal tubules and the collecting ducts and has a few different effects, ultimately leading to increased sodium reabsorption and increased potassium excretion. So, if you have deficient aldosterone, then you would expect hyponatremia with subsequent hypovolemia, as well as hyperkalemia, as well as elevated renin levels since the kidneys think they're being dehydrated. In addition to this, these patients will also have low levels of cortisol, with resulting low cardiac output and decreased GFR, which together with the effects of hypoaldosteronism will cause hyponatremic dehydration and shock, known as adrenal crisis. Adrenal crisis is obviously a medical emergency, so for them you're going to want to bolus them with fluids, give them a stress dose of hydrocorticosterone, dextrose if they're hypoglycemic, as well as correct any electrolyte abnormalities that might be going on. The other 30% of patients with 21-hydroxylase deficiency will actually have low but detectable levels of the enzyme, so they will still be able to produce sufficient aldosterone and thus won't be salt-wasting, and instead we will just have the other major effect of 21-hydroxylase deficiency which we haven't mentioned yet, and that is virilization in females. So let's talk about why that happens. Remember how 21-hydroxylase deficiency leads to a buildup of 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone? Well, if 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone isn't going down the cortisol pathway, then it gets acted on by a separate enzyme and is effectively shunted towards the androgen synthesis pathway. The primary androgen produced by the adrenals is DHEA, or dehydroepiandosterone. When DHEA is secreted by the adrenals, it can then be converted locally in peripheral tissue to form testosterone and dihydrotestosterone, and this overstimulation of the DHEA pathway is what actually leads to the signs of virilization in females, as well as signs of precocious puberty in males. There's one more major player to talk about here, and that's the role of ACTH in all of this. If we remember the HPA axis, the hypothalamus secretes corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH which then acts on the anterior pituitary to secrete adrenocorticotropic hormone, or ACTH, which then acts on the adrenals to ramp up production of basically all the adrenal hormones. In 21-hydroxylase deficiency, however, the cortisol synthesis pathway is blocked, and cortisol acts as a negative regulator on the hypothalamus, so this will cause a feedback loop on the hypothalamus to secrete more CRH, which will lead to even more ACTH, and all the excess ACTH will act on the adrenals to cause hyperplasia and rampant DHEA synthesis, resulting in virilization. All right, now let's review the memory trick that I promised to help you remember the other 5% of causes of congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Rather than remember all the other various enzymes that may be affected, just look at the enzyme name in question. The names of the adrenal enzymes usually begin with a two-digit number, and this memory trick only works by coincidence that if the first digit of that number is a 1, then the patient will most likely have hypertension from a buildup of active cortisol precursors such as 11-deoxycortisol. And if the second digit is a 1, then the patient will most likely have virilization from excessive androgen production. For example, 21-hydroxylase, as we discussed, is characterized by low cortisol and thus low blood pressure as well as excessive androgen production. So our rule holds true here, which is helpful to remember. But what about a deficiency in an enzyme we haven't talked about, like 17-alpha-hydroxylase? What would you expect here? 
Well, you don't need to know the action of this particular enzyme, which, by the way, leads to a buildup of aldosterone precursors and thus increased sodium. All you need to know is that 17-alpha-hydroxylase has a 1 in the first digit. Therefore, according to our trick, you would have hypertension. Simple. What about 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency? That's right. Since both digits are a 1, then you would expect both hypertension and excessive androgen production. Very good. Before moving on to some practice questions, allow me to briefly mention a couple honorable mentions for causes of genital anomalies. Kalman syndrome is a congenital defect of the hypothalamus resulting in a failure of gonadotropic releasing hormone, and this leads to a hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. Kalman syndrome may present in infancy as a boy with micropenis and cryptorchidism, or in a teenage female who is lacking any signs of puberty. The key feature of Kalman syndrome is a characteristic loss of smell, which helps to distinguish it from other causes of hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, such as severe stress or the classic NBME presentation of a young woman who runs a lot and has a low BMI. And individuals with Kalman syndrome will typically require lifelong hormone replacement therapy. Smith-Lemmel-Opitz syndrome is a multi-system disorder caused by defective 7-dehydrocholesterol enzyme a key enzyme in the synthesis of cholesterol. Features of Smith-Lemmel-Opitz syndrome include a wide variety of neuro, musculoskeletal, cardiovascular, and genital urinary findings, the latter of which is due because, as we discussed, cholesterol is the backbone for all the major sex hormones, so these patients will typically have delayed or incomplete puberty, plus or minus adrenal insufficiency. And that about wraps it up. There's only one way to end an episode like this, and that's with some practice questions. Question 1. A 29-year-old primigravid woman comes to your office to establish care. She just recently moved to the area, and records from her old provider indicate that she is at 22 weeks gestation based on LMP and first trimester ultrasound. On physical exam, you note a fundal height of 18 centimeters. Bedside ultrasound reveals a gravid uterus, a viable fetus with a fetal heart rate of 100 beats per minute, and an intact amniotic membrane with an amniotic fluid index of 3 centimeters. Which of the following radiographic features is most likely to also be seen on the ultrasound? A. Non-visualization of the bladder. B. A large ventricular septal defect. C. Absent nasal bone. Or D. Increased nuchal translucency. Answer. A. Non-visualization of the bladder. These prenatal findings of an amniotic fluid index less than 5 centimeters and a fundal height less than expected for gestational age are consistent with a diagnosis of oligohydromnios. The most common cause of oligohydromnios is premature rupture of membranes, but also keep in mind more sinister causes due to kidney dysfunction, such as renal agenesis, which, when it occurs bilaterally, will also be associated with agenesis of the bladder and subsequent severe oligohydromnios. The other answer choices a large ventricular septal defect, an absent nasal bone, and increased nuchal translucency are all signs associated with Down syndrome, with nuchal translucency actually being more specific to the first trimester as compared to the other two. Question 2. You are examining a one-day-old neonate in the newborn nursery, who was born at full term with minimal complications. Vital signs today are temperature 98.2, heart rate 110 beats per minute, pre- and postductal O2 sat, 99%, and BP, 100 over 60. On genital exam, 
you note a phallic structure measuring 1.2 centimeters and bilateral inguinal masses. An ultrasound is ordered and reveals an upper vagina, cervix, uterus, and two oviducts. Which of the following is most likely to be associated with this neonate? A. A 46XY karyotype with a 5-alpha reductase deficiency. B. A 46XX karyotype with 21-hydroxylase deficiency. C. A 46XY karyotype with complete androgen insensitivity. Or D. A 46XX karyotype with aromatase deficiency. Answer, B, a 46XX karyotype with 21-hydroxylase deficiency. This newborn with ambiguous genitalia has internal anatomy revealing persistent malarian duct structures, i.e. the upper vagina, cervix, uterus, and oviducts. The most likely explanation for this presentation is a 46XX karyotype with excessive exposure to androgens in utero. And while this may be caused by an aromatase deficiency, the most common cause is by far and away a deficiency in 21-hydroxylase, resulting in congenital adrenal hyperplasia. 30% of all cases of congenital adrenal hyperplasia will present more or less like this case as the simple virilizing form, but also be cautious of the more common virilizing plus salt-wasting form that can affect up to 70% of patients and be lethal if missed. Question 3. A five-year-old boy with Down syndrome presents to the emergency department with his guardian reporting a two-day history of fever. Physical exam reveals flank pain on the right side. Urinalysis reveals 2-plus leukocyte esterase and 2-plus nitrites. Bedside ultrasound reveals dilation of the right-sided ureter and renal calyx. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Prescribe continuous oral antibiotic therapy. B. First, treat the acute infection, then endoscopically repair the defect. C. Perform avoiding cystourethrogram VCUG. Or D. Order CT with oral contrast. Answer. C. Perform avoiding cystourethrogram VCUG. This five-year-old boy with Down syndrome has two days of fever, right-sided flank pain, a positive urine dipstick, and hydroureter and hydronephrosis, consistent with a complex UTI, most likely caused by some sort of anatomical defect. And your next step is going to be to perform voiding cystourethrography to differentiate between vesicoureter reflux, which would then be treated with continuous oral antibiotics, or something like posterior urethral valves, which can be repaired with transcatheter dilation. Question 4. A 15-year-old girl is in your office as part of a routine physical exam. Upon questioning, she has yet to have her first period. On physical exam, her height is at the 5th percentile, she has a short, broad neck, a low-set posterior hairline, her breasts are at tanner stage 2 with widely spaced nipples, and an external genital exam reveals female-appearing anatomy at tanner stage 2. The rest of your exam is within normal limits. Which of the following is most likely to be the cause of this patient's amenorrhea? A. Ovarian dysgenesis. B. Complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. C. A non-salt-wasting form of congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Or D. Polycystic ovarian syndrome. Answer. A. Ovarian dysgenesis. This 15-year-old girl with incomplete puberty and characteristic features of a low-set posterior hairline and a broad neck 
likely has Turner syndrome, karyotype 45X. The missing X chromosome in Turner syndrome results in gonadal dysgenesis, often described as streak ovaries on ultrasound, with subsequent amenorrhea and incomplete pubertal development. 